the rest of us, let's turn to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. And as you are turning there, I want you to ask yourself a question. Ask yourself a question. Ask yourself, what is the book of Psalms? What is the book of Psalms? What is the collection of this, this collection of poems and songs? The Psalms were Israel's songbook, we know. Many of them co- composed by King David. Some of them composed by others, including Moses in today's Psalm, Asaph. And I'm going to call him Asaph. That's really not his Hebrew pronunciation, but that's how we all know him. Asaph. But the Psalms have ministered to believers in the past and they continue to minister to believers today because the Psalms are an expression of vital, real spirituality and walk with God. The Psalms demonstrate how the truth of God is fully integrated into the believer's life. The Psalms show us what it's like to walk with God. In all the fullness of a robust spiritual experience. This is why the the Psalms resonate with all of us so deeply. They express the wide range of emotions and experiences that the believer has before God. The Psalms give us words to express our feelings, our desires, our complaints, our joys, our longings, our hopes, our troubles, and our sins before God. Really, you could say it this way, take all the great weighty truths of God's revelation and drop them squarely into the life of the believer, and you know what you would get? The book of Psalms. In this way, the book of Psalms not only describe the godly responses to God in life, they are meant to shape the the affections of the believer. The Psalms are meant to deepen our affections for God. And when we read the Psalms, we not only find words to express our own feelings to God, sometimes in in ways that are uncanny, you read the Psalms and you're like, how did he know someone else is experiencing life in this world and with God like I am? We read the Psalms not only to find words to express our feelings towards God, we are also, I think, admonished at times for our superficiality. If you are one who doesn't think that joy is an essential emotion or affection in the Christian life, turn to the Psalms. If you are one who recoils a bit at the idea of crying out to God for help and deliverance, just turn to the Psalms. If you are uncomfortable with thinking about God's vindication of His name through the destruction of His enemies, turn to the Psalms. If you are uncomfortable with pouring your heart out in unbridled honesty before God, Just turn to the Psalms. Indeed, the Psalm that we're going to look at today is one that I would like to call a demonstration of sanctifying honesty. Sanctifying honesty. Our psalmist is troubled by a particular temptation, a particular sin, and he is going to pour out his heart and his observations about life to God and show us in the midst of his struggle how to persevere and overcome a particular temptation, namely the temptation to envy, something I'm sure none of us struggle with today. No, we all struggle with the sin of envy, and so we need to hear from this psalmist. We need to hear from this man of God. Let's look at the first verse. Asaph says this, he says, truly God 
is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Asaph begins this psalm with a convictional statement about God's goodness to Israel. God is truly good to those who know him and who walk in integrity. While it is true that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, God has a special affection for his people and for those who walk uprightly and in for Asaph's context, for those who walk uprightly in Israel. Asaph was one who walked with God. Not all, not all Israel, we know, walked with God, right? Some, in fact, most of Israel departed from God through idolatry, uh, uh, idolatry and apostasy. Not Asaph. Asaph was one of the Levites appointed to minister before the Ark of the Lord. Specifically, quoting from 1 Chronicles 16, to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. In fact, Asaph was one of the chief among these Levites, and he was to sound the cymbals to lead Israel in worship on the day when the the Ark of the Covenant was brought to Jerusalem through King David's direction. Asaph was a musician and apparently a percussionist in some measure, so we know he was legit. He was a worship leader in Israel. He was a man who was walking with the Lord. He enjoyed God's goodness and could say, therefore, in verse 1, that God is good to Israel. He had experienced it. He knew it through that experience. He knew it by conviction. And he walked in his integrity. But he confesses in this psalm, what? Verse 2, but as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped. What happened here? He was a godly man, but he had come across something that had tempted him to make him veer off the path of integrity, to veer off the path of pursuing God, veer off the path of true godliness. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. And we have to wait to verse 13 to get some insight on it, what exactly this means. So I'll just put that there. We have to wait till verse 13 through 15 to find out exactly what the psalmist means by this statement, his feet almost stumbled. But we are going to turn to verse 3 now to find out why this was the case. Why was this case that his feet almost stumbled, this godly man in Israel, this Asaph, this worship leader? In verse 3, we notice he begins it with the word for. So we know that what comes after this is going to be a grounding statement. He's giving us reasons for the statement that he just made. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. His near slippage was due to the fact that he was becoming envious of those who rejected God yet enjoyed earthly prosperity. He saw this reality before him and he began to become a little envious, unhinged, unrooted, you might say, from this path, this walking in integrity, tempted to come off this path. But we need to ask first, before we we dive in here, we need to ask, what in fact is envy? Because that will give us insight into his response here. What exactly is envy? Envy is this. This is how I would define it. Envy is a feeling of discontented resentment toward another person or group of people due to the fact that they have something that you don't. Envy is discontented resentment toward another person or group of people due to the fact that they have something you don't, whether that is wealth, 
opportunity, possessions, position, whatever it might be. Envy is a volatile mixture of both discontentment and resentment, isn't it? Discontentment because you are not satisfied with what you have and resentment because someone has what something, someone has something that you want. Envy is both vertical towards God and it's horizontal towards other people. You are discontent with what God has given you and you resent those who have what you don't. And if we just stop there, that'd be bad enough. But Asaph's envy is inflamed and provoked by something even deeper than that. Envy's, uh, Asaph's envy is, is inflamed by a deeper underlying problem. See, it's one thing to encounter someone who has something you don't have and, and feel resentment towards them because you feel it's un- unfair for them to have it and you don't. It's another thing to encounter someone who has, someone who has something you don't have but at the same time, recognize that it makes sense that they have it and you don't. So resentment doesn't really take hold. For example, I may be discontent that I'm not an NBA basketball player. But I don't have resentment towards Clay Thompson because it's clear to me why he is in the NBA and I'm not. He is uh, 6'7 and I'm 5'8. He's an amazing world-class athlete at age 29. I'm a 40-year-old mediocre athlete who peaked in eighth grade. (laughs) He worked hard to get where he's at. In terms of basketball skill, the disproportionate blessings between Clay and me make sense, so envy doesn't have much room to take root in my soul. But what happens when your paradigm is this? What happens when you have an outlook like this? Namely, earthly prosperity should belong to those who fear the Lord and earthly sorrow and adversity and trouble should belong to those who reject the Lord. What if that's your paradigm? That's the underlying problem for Asaph. How can it be that those who violently reject God get to enjoy a life of material abundance and health? How can that be? While at the same time, those who walk with God and keep their integrity are subject to suffering, ridicule, persecution, and all sorts of earthly trouble. In Asaph's mind, there is a justice problem here. There's a fairness problem here. And it's presently inflaming his envy. And he's going to pour out that concern to the Lord. And now, hundreds and even thousands of years later, for our benefit. Let's look at point number two here, Asaph's observation. Now we're going to look in verses 4 through 12, and we're going to see what Asaph observed about this situation. Notice he said, for I was envious of the arrogant, and then again he's going to ground that statement in verse 4 and say, this is why I was envious. Verses 4 through 12 are going to explain why he's feeling this discontented resentment towards this group of people. What do they say? What does he say? First thing he says, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. What is this? They have all the resources that earth, that this world can offer to enjoy this world, to fill their cup with pleasures. They are in, they are ready to indulge and even overindulge in what this world and this life has to give. That's what this, this, these words here mean, fat and sleek. They give everything to protect their bodies and to feed their bodies and to 
preserve their bodies and they indulge without any thought of consequence. And not only that, on top of that, when they die, their obituaries and CNN says they died quietly in their sleep. Nothing befalls them. Nothing seems to hurt them. They are protected, it seems. There's a hedge around them. They get to just enjoy this life while at the same time rejecting the very creator who has given these good things to them. They don't go to the grave in a troubled, with a troubled conscience. They, are, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Verse 5. They're not in troubles as, as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. In other words, they don't experience the same type of, type of difficulties that the rest of the world does because they have so many resources with, with which to avoid adversity and trouble and suffering. Providence seems to protect them from trouble. Providence does. They're not in trouble as others are. There's a world of suffering people and yet there's this group of prosperous wicked who are just getting away with it it seems therefore verse 6 pride is their necklace violent cover, violence covers them as a garment because they rarely suffer they grow in their pride and they grow in their arrogance they grow in a false confidence they believe they can continue to live this way without any repercussions or consequences because suffering has never sobered them suffering has never brought them to look up and cry out to the lord so their 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 pride swells and grows they wear it like a necklace violence covers them as a garment they can get away with things they can get away with mistreatment of others and corruption and theft and so on no consequences no repercussions. You can see why this is beginning to trouble Asaph. And we should be thankful for his honesty because we need to be brought out to be troubled by this too. This is troubling. Verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. This is a, referen- a reference to overindulgence, but also to laziness and moral indifference. They have not been corrected or sobered by earthly consequences, so they continue to feed their appetites and speak about foolish things in the moral and political and ethical and religious realm. Sound like anybody you know or have heard on TV? Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. Not only do they speak harshly and foolishly, they scoff at others. They even threat threaten others with oppression because they're in a position to affect that kind of oppression. They threaten economic and political and religious oppression, social oppression. They're in a place of authority and power. So they speak and scoff with malice. They treat their neighbor without grace and kindness, without fairness. Verse 9 They set their mouths against the heavens, their tongue struts through the earth. But not only do they speak harshly towards others, now they look up to heaven and they actually actively blaspheme the Lord. 
They direct their arrogance towards God. They blaspheme, blaspheme God. They disregard his revelation. They boast in their ability to gain wealth and success without God. They don't need God to live well in this life. And they'll make sure that you know it on their blog posts, in their book recommendations. Verse 10 and 11. But even more distressing than all that, verses 10 and 11, is the fact that they seem to have followers who follow their blogs and Instagram accounts who, think to th- who seem to think, hey, this makes sense. This is, this is, a, this is an all right way to live. Therefore, his people turn back to them. Potentially even Asaph's thinking of Israel, God's own people being attracted to this kind of life. And he finds no fault in them. Now, actually, the ESV translates it like this. Therefore, as people return to this place, uh, to turn this place, um, uh, let's see, therefore, his people turn back to them. The ESV and the NASB also translate the latter half of the verse 10 differently. The ESV says, and find no fault in them. NASB, the waters of abundance are drunk by them. Whatever translation you take, the broader point seems to be that the prosperous rich, wicked are able to gain a following. A following that recognizes that, hey, maybe there's something here. Look at verse 11. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Again, it's, it's difficult. Is, is it the followers who are saying this? Or is it the prosperous wicked who are saying, how can God know? Does he not see? Again, the, the, the point is clear, regardless of who might be saying this. The point is clear. Due to their pain-free, abundant life, the prosperous, wicked, and their followers have concluded that God is indifferent toward their sinful lifestyle. As people are allowed to continue in unfettered ease and indulgence and blasphemy, the more easy it becomes to conclude that God approves or is at least apathetic toward their sinfulness. So Asaph is beside himself. How can this go on? So he concludes in his description in verse 12 with this concise little phrase. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase their riches. What's going on here? But as we come to verse 13, like I told us at the beginning, Asaph is now going to explain what he meant in verse 2. When he said, as for me, my feet almost stumbled. Let's read verses 13 and 14. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Verse 15. If I had said, quote, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the uh, generation of your children. Here it is. Asaph is beginning to think that all of his integrity and his diligence to keep his inward life pure and his conduct before God and uh, holy and his conduct before others equitable has been pointless and vain. Translation, it doesn't pay off. It doesn't lead to earthly prosperity to walk in integrity, to, to cultivate a holy and pure inward Life, it doesn't pay off. It doesn't lead to material abundance. It actually leads to suffering and persecution and difficulty. Verse 14, for all the day I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. 
So this is, this is the point of tension for him. How can this be? How can it that a righteous God can bless such disregard for his name while at the same time afflicting his people and those who seek to walk in integrity? There's a fairness problem here. If righteousness doesn't pay off with earthly prosperity and sin apparently gets you some material abundance, then what's the point? And what is God really about? But look at verse 15. Remember how he said he almost slipped? He almost stumbled? Verse 15, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Asaph's envy never made it past his inward contemplations and his inward struggles. He wrestled with what he saw. He even had thoughts that his righteous life was in vain, that his following after God was pointless. Yes, he had those thoughts. They were introduced to him and he even was entertaining those thoughts. But he never publicly indicted God. He nearly slipped, but he didn't. So the question we need to ask here as this psalmist is honestly pouring out his his temptations, even his sinful thinking to God is what happened? What brought him back? What kept his feet from slipping? Because he says he did not slip. He almost did. So now I want to know what was it that kept you from hurling yourself over the cliff, Asaph? That's what I want to know. Now we come to the turning point of the psalm. Truly the hinge on the door of this psalm. Verse 16. God's revelation, the future judgment of the wicked. God's revelation, verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Now, here's what's incredibly encouraging about this psalm, among other things. Watch what happens here. He says when he determined that he was going to figure out this justice problem, he quickly saw that it was an impossible undertaking. Notice what he says. He says, When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. What was wearisome about it? Well, the next sentence tells us, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Listen, the attempt to understand why the wicked prosper by only looking at the way things presently appear will yield you very little insight, if any. When Asaph scanned the horizon of life and he saw that those who rejected God enjoyed earthly prosperity while he, a godly man, suffered, and he took those facts and he tried to make sense out of them with his own autonomous reason and intellect, he learned very quickly that such a a method of investigation would create an insurmountable problem. That is, so long as he attempted to solve this problem Without divine revelation, he would get no clarity and he would get no resolution. That's why the turning point for Asaph is the point where he comes to God's revelation. When he viewed this situation and he viewed these so-called facts of the way things were, the, the, the wicked prosper and the godly suffer, and he tried to bring these things and bring a resolution to these facts with his own mind and his own reason, he saw that it was impossible and would only drive him into greater despair. It was a wearisome task. It wasn't until he then brought these realities to God's word that things 
started to make sense. Thinking alone, as one has said, will give neither light nor true happiness. Mere thinking or mere meditating on earthly facts will give you no spiritual light until you take those facts and run them through the grid of God's word. It's when Asaph went into the sanctuary that he finally got wisdom and insight about how to resolve this troubling reality. The sanctuary to which Asaph refers here was likely the tabernacle. Tabernacle, temple hadn't been built yet. And inside this tabernacle would have resided the Ark of the Covenant, Ten Commandments, and other important elements in Israel's history, probably including uh, a copy of the Book of the Law. Most importantly, the tabernacle represented that the God of the universe had come down and revealed himself to Israel. He had shown himself and given both himself and his word to Israel. It was when Asaph considered God and his revelation, therefore, that he was able to come to a solution of his problem. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned there. And up to this point, he has not brought his problems to God's revelation. He's only tried to discern them with his own reason based on what he sees out there in the world. And it wasn't until he brought them to God that things started to make sense. What was the solution for him? He was able to see that despite their present ease and prosperity and health and material abundance, God would certainly judge those who rejected him. God will judge the wicked. He will judge the prosperous wicked. Indeed, God has them exactly where he wants them, incredibly enough. Listen to this statement here. In verse 18, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by tears, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Notice that it says that God sets them in slippery places. See, it looked as though God that providence had been blessing and pouring out and in protecting these the wicked uh, prosperous wicked from trouble when in fact it was their very prosperity that was the slippery place that god had put them in their present prosperity was actually god's doing and their abundance and luxury is the slippery place Their prosperity and ease had made them completely indifferent towards God, completely indifferent towards their impending death, completely indifferent towards their future judgment. Asaph says that God is going to bring them to ruin. They're destroyed in a moment. They may enjoy earthly prosperity, but it is only for a moment. Only a fading, fleeting vapor, and it's gone. Only temporary. And God will bring them into judgment. Notice also verse 27 at the end here. It says, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. The the wicked may be presently living in ease, enjoying every possible earthly enjoyment. Despite their rejection of God and their ill treatment of others. That may be the reality. That is reality in many corners of the world and of this nation but there is a judgment coming god will 
you can be certain of it because he's revealed that God will judge the wicked. He will put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to him. Now, what we have to notice in that verse that we read in verse 27 is that it's comprehensive. It's comprehensive. It refers not only to the prosperous wicked, but it refers to everyone who is unfaithful to God. Listen to the language. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. You don't have to be exceedingly wealthy or engage in outright oppression to be, li- to be liable to God's judgment. If you haven't bowed the knee to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith in his death on the cross, then you will be swept away along with all those who are present living in outright rejection of him. Perhaps you are here today and you've comforted yourself with the thought that the person who is described in this passage is not you. You're not exceedingly wealthy. And you certainly aren't oppressing anyone. You're not overindulgent, at least not very often. You're not, but you are seeking a life of ease. You are seeking a life of comfort. You're leveraging all your resources to avoid suffering. You haven't come to Christ and heard him say, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. If you haven't come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith in his gospel, then you face the same judgment that that wealthy Hollywood celebrity or that arrogant politician you think you are so much better than. Come and be saved from the judgment. Jesus Christ has borne that judgment for you on his body on the cross. The judgment that is coming for the wicked, Jesus has borne it on himself. And you can receive that pardon if you repent and believe in him. There's nothing left for you to do. He cried out, it is finished. He has borne the judgment for you. Repent and turn to Jesus Christ. And those who are presently living in ease and luxury and building an empire of wealth and earthly prominence while living in rebellion towards God, let it be known to you that on the authority of God's word, that judgment is coming. Scripture says that your money and your ease and your accomplishments and your arrogance will someday someday be swept away in a flash. You will die and God will say to you, fool, you have stored up treasures for yourself and have not been rich towards God. So there, turn to God. Turn to Christ in repentance and faith. Give yourself and your wealth unreservedly to him. And we just have to say this because where we live in the Bay Area, Silicon Valley needs to hear this message. The prosperity and the potential for material and professional greatness that is here has deadened many a heart to the impending judgment and the temporary fleeting nature of wealth, prominence, earthly success, and earthly recognition. It is but for a moment. It's just a moment. People here building an empire that means nothing and will mean nothing. It is but a moment. God has allowed you to rebel against him and he has been long suffering with you. It may not seem like he's watching over this or that he cares, but he does. And he will put an end to your rebellion someday soon. He's given Jesus Christ for you. He has borne the wrath that you deserve. He has borne the storm of God's anger. You can come. You can avoid this judgment by coming to Christ and trusting in him. This is the message that the Bay Area needs to hear. 
I recently heard a message from a Christian encouraging people in the Bay Area, encouraging to, and telling Christians how they can create better devices, create better devices that don't um, isolate us and that help us in our daily lives. I'm sure that's all well and good and has its place. But that is definitely not the first message that needs to be given to the people in the Bay Area. We have here an overabundance of wealth and prosperity that, that people are gathering around them, believing that this is what it's all about and it's going to go away in a moment. Let's bring them the gospel. Let's bring them this truth that judgment truly is coming. Well, let's turn back here to Asaph's confession. Asaph's confession. He says, I was like a beast towards you. I was like a beast towards you. What is this about? When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. This is interesting. Notice that Asaph is ready to confess his envy in his inward sin. You know, once he has been corrected by God's revelation... He's been set back on course by some meditation on God and his word. Asaph is able to speak openly and honestly about his sin. That's why this psalm is such a precious gem to us. Here you have the honesty of the psalmist pouring out his troubled soul in blatant honesty before the Lord. This is what I see, God. It doesn't line up. He is corrected by God's word, and now he's ready to repent of the way he was thinking. What does he say? Remarkable language. I was like a beast towards you. What does this mean? A beast in the, the Bible is, is a creature that has no knowledge of God. He was acting, getting envious of the wicked, seeing their prosperity, feeling like I want that, and I'm angry they have that, and I don't. I should have that. And then when he's corrected by God's word, he realizes that was so stupid. That was foolish. I was like a beast who has no knowledge. The, the cow doesn't know that God's judgment is coming upon the uh, prosperous wicked. Animals don't know that. Beasts don't know that. The beasts of the field don't know that. They just eat their grass and eat their hay and enjoy life until they're sent to the slaughterhouse, of course. They don't know. So when Asaph is thinking like this and he's tempted to slip and he's tempted to uh, say these things out loud, he realizes he was acting like someone or something that has no knowledge of God. He's like a beast. In the blazing clarity of God's justice and goodness, he repents in dust and ashes. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. This is repentance. This is repentance. He recognizes where his thinking was wrong and he sees it in the blazing clarity of the goodness and kindness of his God. And he says, I was like a beast. I was like a beast. Verse 23, gospel, nevertheless. That's gospel right there. That's gospel. Nevertheless. You mean to tell me that you were acting like a beast towards God, someone who had forgotten the kindness and goodness of the Lord, and when it was your mind and heart were renewed and you repented, 
you can say like, I, I am continually with you. God never let him go. He would always belong to the Lord. So he could, this is the reason why he could pour his heart out to God. Because he belonged to him. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Asaph's ultimate hope in the midst of watching the wicked grow in their material abundance wasn't primarily their impending judgment. This is what's so beautiful about this psalm. His, the, the root, the, the, the main solution for him was not the impending judgment of the wicked, though that was part of the solution. Don't get me wrong. That is definitely part of the solution. Justice must be served, and God's going to make sure that happens. No, the ultimate, deepest solution, the deepest root for Asaph's troubles was God himself. God himself. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. This anxiety and envy over the wealth and ease of the wicked brought him to see their end. The enjoyment is only temporary. It's a mere breath. But this reality, listen, this is the key to this, this psalm. This reality that the, that the judgment is coming upon the prosperous wicked, this reality only highlighted with greater clarity the fact that Asaph has God. He has God. He has him while on earth. It says this, you guide me with your counsel. Here's just a concise summary of the Christian life. You guide me with your counsel. So he has him here on earth. And he has them in heaven. You, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. I don't need wealth. I don't need earthly recognition. I don't need glory from people. I don't need temporary prosperity. I don't need an elite position. I don't need a life of ease. I don't even need my health. I have God and there is no one like him and no one more precious to me. This is the deepest root of Asaph's contentment. This is the most powerful weapon against the temptation and sin of envy. It doesn't matter what anyone else has. I have God. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is his portion, not the streets of gold, not even the relatives who have died and gone to heaven before him. To Asaph and every true believer, heaven would be hell if Jesus Christ is not there. God is his portion. Well, we have to say this. This is a medicine that must be constantly applied to our souls. You might notice that the the title of this message was a cure for envy, as though you just have a crisis experience and boom, envy evaporated. And I can just move on through my life. We must continue. That's not the case. We must continually, by God's grace, come back and back and back to his revelation to be refreshed by the reality that God will deal righteously with the wicked and that this life and the prosperity that anyone enjoys in it is only temporary. It is but a breath. And that God is infinitely more precious than what can be attained in this temporary life on earth. But finally note, as we close here, finally note what this creates in Asaph. The kind of spirit this creates in the psalmist. He has confessed his envy. He has been honest about his sin. God's word has corrected him. His love for God has been renewed. And he knows that those who reject God will ultimately perish. How does he finish his psalm? 
How does he finish? But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. The wicked reject God and perish. Asaph is happy to be near God and he's made the Lord his refuge, but he doesn't stop there. What's the last sentence? That I may tell of your works. He wants to edify the saints and he wants to evangelize the lost by telling them who God is, what he has done and what he will do on behalf of those who love him and know him and for those who don't. When God takes us through a trial in order to renew our love for him, open our eyes again to foundational spiritual realities, and the end game isn't our individual joy or satisfaction in God, as glorious and wonderful as those things are. Satisfaction in God and divinely given joy must overflow in edification of the saints in evangelism in telling others of his great works. In light of what we know, in light of what we know for certain about the judgment that is coming upon the prosperous wicked, the righteous judgment that God will deliver, they must be the objects of our compassion and evangelism, not our bitterness and envy. Do you see that? So what, so what Asaph has done is he's taken us through by giving us this uh, honest uh, revealing of his heart before God and told us how he, has take, how he has been brought to a godly conclusion. He takes us all the way to that solution that therefore then turns outward. It's not merely for our closets. It's not merely for our private devotions. It is at the end to turn outward in edification and evangelism. So Asaph has taught us much today, hasn't he? He has shown us that the godly can wrestle with difficult emotions like envy. He has taught us that to be honest before God in what we see in this life and how in Scripture we are enabled to see and understand reality. He has taught us not to wander around trying to figure things out with our own autonomous reason, but but constantly bringing what we see to Scripture and having God give us the interpretive word. God interprets our reality for us. He has given us a model of how to work through temptation. And He has shown us that God Himself is the answer to our envy. May God give us grace and enable us to see that he is more precious than everything that we have and everything that we don't have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful psalm from Asaph. We thank you that you've given to us saints who pour out their souls to you, who are honest before you, who are assured of their relationship with you so they can express to you their struggles. God, would you work that same spirit in us that we might be able to pour our hearts out to you, but not to remain there, but to be corrected then by your truth, your revelation, by you yourself. To repent and to see that you are the answer to our envy, that you are more precious than anything that we could have or anything that we don't have. God, give us compassion for those who are the, the prosperous wicked. 
I pray that each of us would have the boldness to speak a bold word, an honest word about what will happen to those who reject God, who reject Christ, and then that we would bring in the sweetness of Jesus, the sweetness of the gospel to their plight, that he is worth trading in all their empire and to walk humbly in this life to receive eternal life and glory in the next. I pray these things for ourselves. I pray that the gospel go out to the Bay Area. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.